over the course of the next few weeks, which we will um, talk about uh, in just a moment as we begin to lay a foundation uh, for what the next uh, couple of weeks as we work through the season of Advent will um, look like. I want to begin uh, with a quote. Um, you, you've heard me quote John Piper many times. Uh, this morning I want to begin with a quote from Noelle Piper uh, in which uh, she says this. This is beautiful. She says, we are a people of promise. Now, of course, she's talking about like Christian people, that as a, as a Christian people, we are a people of promise. We are a people who rely on promise, the promise of the Lord. She goes on to say, for centuries, God prepared people for the coming of his son. Our only hope for life. At Christmas, we celebrate the fulfillment of the promise God made. That he would give a way to draw near to him. Advent is what we call the season leading up to Christmas. So if you're here and the language that we're using is new, what is Advent? What does that mean? I thought this was, this was Christmas time. Why do you guys call it Advent? Well, we're, we're considering from a, a biblical worldview, from a historical worldview, this time leading up to this culmination and celebration of the coming of the Messiah, our King Jesus, into the world. One well-known pastor and theologian draws out the significance of this season, as well as John 1's place in it, as he writes... The Christian purpose of the Advent season is to focus our attention on the great reality described in verses 1 and 14. What we just read, right? Hunter just read for us verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1. In verses 1 and 14, we see what might best be described as an exposition of Jesus. In verse 1, we see that the Word was God. In verse 14, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He goes on to say this, that everything we are and believe as Christians depends upon this. Jesus, the Christ, fully God and fully man. Well, what does this mean and why is this so essential? Why is this so important to our Christian faith. Well, it means that the foundation of our faith rests upon the true identity of Jesus from Nazareth. Right, let's say it this way, that, that without his humanity described in John 1 verse 14, his substitution can be no benefit to sinners. That is to say that, that his death in our place, without his humanity, is of no benefit to you and I. It means that without his deity described in verse 1, the fact that he is both fully man and fully God, that there can be no atonement for sinners. The, The idea continues. So even though Christmas as a Christian festival may not be taught in the Bible, the Christian meaning given to Christmas is the very foundation of the Bible. Over the next four weeks, we will be taking a look at the first chapter of John's Gospel. 
And in doing so, we are going to explore the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. As John, the beloved disciple, writes retrospectively, right, having, having been called into a knowledge of the person of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that John, as he writes, is convinced that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The one, the one spoken of by the prophets, foretold of by God, and sent to rescue a people from their sins. Right, Genesis, Genesis 3, crushing the snake. Genesis 12 and Genesis 28, blessing the nations. 2 Samuel chapter 7, reigning as eternal king over an eternal kingdom. Isaiah chapter 7, Luke chapter 1, born of a virgin. Micah chapter 5, Matthew chapter 2, in Bethlehem. Hosea chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 2, called out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, Hebrews 9, without sin. We could continue on and on and on exploring the parallels and the connections between the prophetic words right, of God's men called to communicate his message in the Old Testament and that which we see coming to fulfillment in the person of Christ understood and unpacked from a New Testament perspective. As this story begins here in John chapter 1, the action builds quickly. John writes in a really interesting way. Now, there's a couple of ways that we oftentimes tell stories, aren't there, right? Maybe we consider the way that we observe movies and television shows and series. Right? There's, a, there's a building of events, one brick upon another, until there is this, this climactic moment. Right, culmination and resolution. This is the way that stories are often told. Right, anticipation builds, and we wait. We sit on the edge of our seats. How is this gonna? How is this gonna play out? How is this gonna? How is this gonna turn out? John doesn't write this way. Instead, John shares the climax. And the resolution from the life and ministry of Jesus from the onset. Right? Only only then to go back and explain the events that led to the ends. It's more like a Tarantino film, right? You see the the end from the beginning. That's kind of the way that that John writes. From John 1, we observe a, a diagnosis. Best understood as we embrace distinction and counters. Let's consider the counters and the distinctions that we know and observe and live in daily. Right? Light and darkness. Day and night. Wet and dry. Life and death. Opposite ends of the spectrum. Here, John highlights for his readers the hopelessness of the human condition. Our world and it's opposite, right? Hope in the word of God, John 1.1, 1, 1, and the light of men, John 1.4, Christ Jesus, his person and his work. 
Through this Advent season, we will be observing supreme hope, peace, joy, and love. The love of God observable through the incarnation of Jesus and experienced through fellowship with Him. This is a large portion of my argument from John 1 today. Here it is. Where are we going? Number one, that we are hopeless. Number two, that we have all sought to place our hope in the things that are ultimately incapable of saving and satisfying us. At which point... We all go, wow, that's incredibly bleak. <laughs> where, where, what are you going to tell us next? That we fret a little bit, right? Like we feel the tension. We feel the, the weightiness as we talk about that. Perhaps even you take a bit of offense to that, right? Wait a second, hopeless? I'm not hopeless. Like I've got lots of hope, right? The things of this world... Like they are, they are seeming to, at least in this season, bring the satisfaction that my heart and soul so long for. We feel a, a bit of a bit of tension, and to be perfectly honest with you, it is it is good. Right? It's it's good that we that we sit in this and that we and that we feel this because there is good news. But the argument that we are going to make this morning is that in order, to, in order to best understand the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, we have to understand the hopelessness of our current condition. Right? In order to, to best understand the hope that the advent of our king injects into the world, we have to understand that we live in a world absent of hope. We have to feel the tension, okay? We have to, we have to feel uh, the, the, the bleakness, right? We have to feel the cloud. We have to sit in the cloud for a moment. Let's just sit in the cloud, and it's like it's raining, right? It's a lot like yesterday, which many of you hate the type of weather that we uh, observed yesterday. I love it. It's like everything that I enjoy about weather. Just rain and cold. I know, Kayla, I'm sick, okay? It's just it's the way that it happens. I mean, this is kind of where we are. We're just under this cloud, and it's just and it's just raining down on us. And we need to sit in it for just a moment so that we can understand the hope of the gospel. So let's begin by understanding from John one the hopelessness of the human condition within a hopeless and broken world. You go, wait a second. You just said a lot of things, right? Let's make a few notes, a few things that we're going to hit on. Number one, the hopelessness of the human condition. Right, that we are broken, sinful, and as a result, without hope. And we'll talk about all the various ways, while not exhausting, all of the various ways that this manifests itself in our lives. While then observing the hopelessness of the world that we live in, a world that is undoubtedly broken. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're unwilling to, at this point, concede your own brokenness. There's no doubt that you can observe the condition of the world and you go, yeah, this is broken, right? So, so even if we begin um, embracing the truth of one side, I think what we have to do is, is embrace and, and begin to wrap our arms around the truth of, of both. So let's, let's dive in. The hopelessness of the human condition and the hopelessness uh, and brokenness of our world. Given the knowledge of Jesus that we have already expressed that John possesses, Right, his writing retrospectively, his writing 
right? In the beginning, understanding how the end turns out. A question worthy of our consideration should be, why in the world is John writing to a group consisting of both Jew and Gentile, sometimes toward the close of the first century? A question that John himself answers for us in chapter 20 of his gospel as he writes. And you'll find this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And so what do we know about John's gospel? If you have zero familiarity with John's gospel, what can you gather based on what we observe from John chapter 20 verse 30? Well, that that John talks a lot about like the works of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And he is not exhausting the list of the work of Jesus throughout this gospel. Verse 31, he writes, But these are written, the ones that are contained here, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John John knows how everything turns out. He writes in light of this realization. And he begins here drawing out for his readers, first, their condition being the sin of people, and second, the condition of the world being its brokenness, a reality expressed in chapter 1. We don't have to read all the way to John chapter 20 to go, oh my gosh, like I am in need of being rescued. We're brought to this realization from the beginning. Implicit and explicit truths from John chapter 20. Look with me at verse 9 of John chapter 1. John's drawing out here for us humanity's hopelessness. And he writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now remember what we read in verses 1 and 2. Perhaps it would be best for us to go back and to consider some of the language that we observe in verses um, maybe even 1 through 5. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5. Hunter already read it for us, but let's, let's read it in light of where we are going in verse, in verse 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We're going to talk about how important this idea is as we continue on. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so there's this connection between the Word, dwelling with God, as God, being with God, creating all things, and then this light. So what is, what is John talking about in verse 9? Well, he's talking about the true light. He's talking about the light that we're introduced to there in verses 1 through 5, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. We just read that in verses 1 through 5. Yet, the world did not know him. That's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? Right, first, that, that God would enter into the world that he created. <laughs> now, I don't know what your faith views are, right? 
But there are some that that are of the opinion that God simply created. He set the world in motion. He spun it like a top, and then he just stepped back and watched everything play out. It could not be more wrong based on our understanding of the incarnation, (laughs) right? Not only does God not allow the world to to just spin off, not only is he active in it, but we see, based on what we read here in verses 9 and 10, that he enters into it. Verse 10 just obliterates certain ideas that perhaps you or ones that you know or have heard have adopted concerning the nature and character, action, work of God. God enters into the world that he created. We see that the the, the one who, verses 3 and 10, made all things, the one who, verse 4, overcomes the darkness, is unrecognizable. John writes in verse 10 that despite his arrival, an arrival that was foretold of, right, an arrival that has been much anticipated, that the world did not know him. I want us to think about what this looks like for for just a moment. I want you to imagine, I started thinking about some of the most chaotic um, and interesting scenes that I have observed in news over recent years. And one of the first things that came to my mind, especially around this time of year, um, were like these these massive lines outside of department stores in like larger cities, right? I'm thinking, I thought specifically about um, like the, the Apple store there in New York City and like the release of a, of a new gadget, right? Like stylist, pencil, pad, phone, whatever it may be, right? That there are just these massive lines of people, right? They, they tuned in and they watched the live stream to see what was coming new from Apple and it just like tickled all their fancy, right? And they're like, okay, must. And so, like, release day comes, and people are lined up outside the street, and the police are there, and taxis are honking, and it's insane how people are not just, like, like, like tearing one another apart. I have no idea, <laughs> given the passion that they place in these, in these items. It would be like, like the, the release of this newest technological gadget, right? Um, individuals standing in line for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours, waiting for the doors to open, only to have Steve Jobs show up and nobody in line recognizes him, <laughs> right? Like we've, we've, we've waited, like we're invested, we understand, like we're interested. And then like, like the, the creator <laughs> shows up and, and everybody's like, back of the line, buddy, right? Like just nobody gets it. Like everybody, everybody misses it. Interesting, right? Tragic. So we make the correlation back to the creators being unrecognized by his creation. Only John doesn't stop there. And he goes on and says in verse 11 that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about the hopelessness of the human condition. Now, it's, it's one thing for like, like Bob, right? Sarah, Steve, Trey, 
to be like standing in line waiting for the release of this, this newest product. And for, for Steve Jobs to walk up and nobody recognize him. But it's an altogether different thing when he walks into the store and none of his employees recognize him either. From John 20, verse 31, we see explicitly that life comes through Christ. Implicitly, we observe that apart from Christ, there is not life. From John 1, we see how desperate our condition is. A hard truth that we are in need of being made aware of. If your next door neighbor tells you that he is a plumber, you're like, great, like stellar. Like, glad it's you and, and like, not me. Like, I wouldn't want to be crawled into a hole under a house this time of year. Maybe today, because it's like, you know, July. But normally, right, no. If, if you go into your home and you find that there are two and a half inches of water in your bathroom, right, just pouring, pouring out of the ceiling, right, the fact that your neighbor is a plumber becomes... Like, no longer just interesting, right? But it becomes, like, extremely practical. It becomes really important. In fact, it becomes supremely important. To grasp the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, we must understand our current predicament. Right? And in order to, in order to grasp our current predicament, we need to look no further than the incarnation. We need to look no further than Christmas. John Bloom, a contributor to Desiring God, writes this. The real Christmas was nothing like the Christmas that we've come to know with its traditions, memories, and legends. We all have these like fuzzy feelings about Christmas, right? And I'm not like, I'm not waging an assault on fuzzy feelings right here, okay? So like, let me step back and say this. Like, if you're a fuzzy feely guy, like, don't sweat. Like, I'm not about to just like slay you, okay? In fact, I have them as well. Even though I ha- I'm kind of living vicariously through things that I've observed. I asked Anna this morning if she would draw our Christmas tree um, on the board because we don't have a Christmas tree and we have a big green board and so it just seemed to make sense, right? Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> and so I asked her, she said, do you want me to put ornaments on it? And I'm like, oh yeah. Like, lot, like red ornaments, like the red balls, like the classic, you know what I mean? I said, can you, um, can you do uh, like, like strung together cranberries and popcorn, like two? Could you do that on there? And then maybe like some tinsel, like just make it extremely gaudy. Just make it like, like super tacky. That's what, I'm really, that's what I'm really going for. There's something about me that just connects warmly with that type of imagery, even though we never had that. Maybe it's the fact that I never had it that I want it so, uh, so bad. The real Christmas was nothing like the Christmas that we've come to know with its traditions, memories, and legends. The birth of Christ was a desperate moment that occurred for a desperate reason. Desperation in that death and darkness has captured our attention. 
Right? Desperation and that death and darkness has captured our affections. We are so poisoned by sin that our king, based on what we observe here from John chapter 1, is unrecognizable. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. You are more desperate. I could spend the next hundred years right here, like, discussing our desperate condition, and I would not exhaust it. Our nature is totally corrupt. We are totally broken. And its effect is observable through the rejection of God. There's a, there's a longing for wholeness within each one of us. Only because of our rebellious nature, we naturally look elsewhere for the hope and satisfaction and joy, fulfillment that is found in only one place. Let's consider a few areas in which we oftentimes look for hope. A few areas that we oftentimes look to for fulfillment. A few areas that we oftentimes look to for wholeness. Perhaps that is experienced through the ideal relationship. Right? Maybe it's through fulfilling employment. Maybe obedient children, success, respect, or for those of you who are just a few weeks away from graduation, degrees. Maybe it's financial peace or relief from pain, stress, anxiety, or addiction. Right? Surely hope and wholeness is found in these things. Have you ever said that to yourself before? Right? If only I can maintain this, if only I can achieve this, then, yes, like there, that's, that's the pinnacle. Only to find out that it's not. In fact, hope, even in these, is found in Christ alone and a gospel-centered view of their purpose. We live in a world that looks so oftentimes towards fulfilled sexual desires and identification as Mecca. Right? A, a, this reality is that if our hope for rescue rests here, it is only a matter of time before the realization that wanting remains sets in. Right? As broken people in a broken world, desperately in need of hope, are brought to the realization that this desire remains unsatisfied. The question is, where do we look? We are hopeless. Right? We live in a broken world. Newsflash. Do you feel it? The question that we then must begin to answer, the question that we are all seeking to run to, to jump into in light of this realization is, where do we look? And the answer is this, that we look to Christ. We look to Christ and the hope observable through the incarnation of Jesus, which is our second observation from this morning. We begin with this, this, this hopelessness. I think we've built quite a case for hopelessness. The Creator enters into His creation. 
The world fails to recognize him. We've been in the book of Genesis for like 13 years now. And we are constantly going back to the beginning and we're talking about what humanity's relationship with our creator ought to look like. How do we know what that looks like? Well, because we see it in Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Right? We, we see it through humanity's enjoyment of intimacy with the Father. Right? We see it through humanity's experiencing of the absence of sin, perfect fellowship with one another, perfect intimacy and fellowship with God. And now we see from John 1 a people created by the Lord, an act of great compassion, failing to even recognize him. Holy cow, (laughs) right? A position that each one of us in this room, if we are not currently occupying, have occupied. We've got to get to hope. We feel the hopelessness. We've rested, right? We've sat in it. Let's consider the hope observable through the incarnation of Christ. Right? Our, our same source of sorrow, our condition, and subsequent rejection of God coupled with his commitment serves as a sinner's source of supreme hope. Let me say that one more time. If you're a note taker, write this down. Right, our, our same source of sorrow. What is that? Well, it's our condition, right? It's this, this understanding of our rejection of God. Same source of sorrow, coupled with his commitment, serves as a sinner's source of supreme hope. Look what John writes for us in verse 12. He says this. Right, to, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but God. Sinners, reborn by the Spirit of God, according to the will of the Father and the substitutionary work of the Son, as We are, Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have what? Redemption. In whom we find what? Forgiveness of sins. Listen to what John writes in verse 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Right? There's this, this picture of just, of just overflowing grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. A law that assists in bringing us into a deeper understanding of our failure, of our rebellion. Right? Not only do we reject the person, Right and work, not only do we reject God, but we seek to live in obedience and accordance with, with what we deem to be most appropriate. 
We all have experiences with this. Like, we all feel this tension, right? This is not a, like, okay, like, um, like pre-regeneration, like, pre-Christian posture. And, okay, well, now, like, I no longer struggle with this anymore because I am now regenerate, right? And I'm a Christian. No. Of course you struggle with this, right? You may in here right now having, struggle, having trouble forgiving someone, <laughs> Right? Anybody right now, as we come into like the Christmas season, having a difficult time, like focusing and, and maintaining our attention on Christ as opposed to just this consumeristic culture that we so oftentimes live in? Anybody freaked out this week about like like Christmas parties and what are we gonna cook and like how many presents are we gonna buy and how is this all gonna happen? Like, yeah, of course you have. And if you haven't, like, you're just way behind, and, like, you're a procrastinator, and you haven't realized it yet, right? Like, it's coming. Some of you guys are like, are you kidding me, man? It's, like, first weekend of December. I'm not sweating this yet. You will, right? We're brought into this realization of our need. The law given through Moses... John continues, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What does this, what does this mean? Right? That's the question. Okay, like, great, wonderful. Now, like, what do, we, what do we do with this? What does this mean? One theologian said it like this. The Son of God became man. Right? This is what John means when he says that Jesus was the light of men. Like he's, he's drawing out for us his humanity. The Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. The hope of the gospel. Our rejection is realized and yet in the very next breath, we see that there is opportunity for friendship and fellowship. In this season, there is a war that is being waged for our hearts. For our attention, as we all search for hope. I read an article even this morning. I went back and I added this to my notes this morning. It was an article from Paul David Tripp, and it was about um, like relating with your children and teaching them like the value of Advent in this particular season. As there is this war, whether we find ourselves like like three years old or like thirty years old, for our our hearts. I've adapted it a little bit so that we can, we can all connect with it, whether or not you have children or, or not. So I want you to hang with me for one moment as I read to, through some of these things. Tripp reminds us that in this season, we would do well to, number one, abide in God's word. Abide in God's word. As there is this war being waged for our hearts, how do we respond in this particular season? Being drawn into like this greater realization of hope in Christ Jesus. We, we abide in the word. Right? We, we abide in God's word. That's number one. Number two, we consider the bad news. Right? Sin and separation. Sin and separation. I had a, I had a great conversation with a, uh, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, about what it looks like to live mission. 
right? And to share the gospel with those that we, um, that we have influence with, like friends, family, children, right? Husbands, wives. How do we do that? And one thing that we, that we kind of drew out over the source of our conversation was that there has to be this, this presentation of both the bad news and the good news, right? If it's just good news and there's no bad news, then there's no, like, real understanding of how good the good news is, right? And, and so, as we consider what Tripp calls us into, <coughs> excuse me, number one, abiding God's word. Number two, consider the bad news. In the Christmas season, Christmas trees, tinsel, presents, gifts, family, eggnog, all the, all the things, right? Consider the bad news as it makes this season so much sweeter. He adds, good news isn't good unless it is prefaced with bad. And redemption becomes beautiful when we understand the depth of our need. The infinite amount of of, of water choking out of our souls, to go back to the illustration of a bathroom filled with water. Right, understanding the bad news that we've walked in to our homes, having having heard of the occupation of our neighbor, having almost altogether forgotten even what he said, only to open the door and find water rushing down the front steps. <laughs> right, understand the hopelessness, like understand the bad news, in order to to most appropriately lean into and understand the hope of the gospel. Number three. Recognize the false story, right? The, the false narrative of our world, the lasting satisfaction and hope in the things of this world. Recognize the false narrative, which leads us to number four and our only hope for rescue. Our, our only hope for relational reconciliation, our only hope for joy and humility and patience, our only hope for our marriages and our mission, our only hope for parenting from a gospel perspective, our only hope for contextualizing and understanding the appropriateness of, of academia to the glory of God. In all of this, our ultimate hope is the person, presence, and work of Jesus. Do you get that? All the things that we talked about earlier on, the things that we oftentimes look to, right, as, as satisfying that, that desire within us for lasting hope and joy, the ideal relationship, fulfilling employment, obedient children, success, respect, degrees, financial peace, relief from pain, stress, anxiety, addiction. The gospel provides for us this new lens by which we look into these things and run to the cross of Christ. Understanding number five. That this story, right, the, the Advent story and the coming of hope, peace, joy, and love of God in Christ makes sense of everything for us. What are you sitting here right now and you're going, like, I don't know how to view this. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to understand this. I don't know how to, to live in response to this. Here's what we're saying. Okay, is that the gospel makes 
sense of these things for us. Right? That the gospel points us, right? The right direction. That the gospel provides us, right? By the grace of, of Christ and the work of the Spirit with wisdom necessary. You're in here and you're going, man, if I was looking towards like a healthy and fruitful marriage, healthy relationships as my source of hope, then yeah, like I, I'm grasping. I'm missing the hopelessness a little bit from John 1, but I'm getting the hopelessness of that. Clearly, if I'm looking to that to satisfy me, I am left wanting. What do you do? You look to Christ. Right? You work a job that you, that you hate, that is not fulfilling. Right, that in fact feels as though robs you from hope. You're like, if I, I'm not looking to my job for hope, I'm fleeing from my job to maintain any sense of hope that I currently possess. How do we respond? And we look to Christ, right? Purpose for life's experiences. Hope, peace, joy, and love. Christ makes sense of, of all of these things in our lives for us. Timothy Keller writes this, In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. Our sovereign king, embraces the rejection of his own creation in order to reconcile it to himself. But in order to reconcile it to himself. I referenced an article about John Bloom earlier. I want to go back to it, and then I want to share with you another portion in which he writes this. That the word of God became flesh. We see this. We observe this. We've read it this morning from John 1 verse 14. So that the word could become sin for us condemned sinners. And die for us that we might be made righteous in him. Let me read that one more time. The word became flesh. John 1 14. Remember John's perspective by which he is writing. He understands the end from the beginning. We are, as we observe John's posture in his writing of this gospel, seeing from a man who has already observed the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, these paramount truths in John chapter 1 that shape the way that we understand everything. He's drawing us in to this, to this realization that the incarnate king, the word of God, become flesh, enters into the world for condemned sinners to die for us that we might be made righteous in him. I want us to close with a few, a few ideas. The Christmas season, absent from the the incarnation of Jesus, is a season that is devoid of lasting, truly satisfying hope. But, sinner, (laughs) be of good cheer. While sin has had its effect and our hearts are naturally dark and dead, while our world is is naturally dark, we are not dismayed. 
Why? Well, because the Christian message is a message of hope, not because of our wisdom or intellect or strength, but because Christ has overcome the darkness of our hearts, the darkness of this world, by stepping into the darkness as the eternal light of men, so that hopeless sinners might know the hope of Christ, fully God and and fully man. We've been with Judah going through um, this this book. It's actually Piper's book, who's here with us this morning for the first time. What up, Court? Welcome back. And thanks for bringing our daughter as well. This is this is her book, um, and like I think I'm benefiting more from it at this point than she is. Um, but nonetheless, we're leaning into it, okay? Um, and it's a book uh, called First Bible Basics. Um, First Bible Basics. Anybody have this book? Yeah, maybe we got the idea from from you, Stephanie. I don't know. Um, but on chapter two, chapter one is is God. What a great place! Just always begin with God, okay? Um, and then um, we go to to chapter two, and it's this um, this little like yeah on the nature. Of Jesus, the two natures of Jesus, um, and there um, here is a hymn that we oftentimes sing this time of year, but um, we sing it so often that perhaps we kind of run by it, um, and we don't really consider what is being communicated. But but we're considering here how important, how pivotal, how foundational the two natures of God are: His humanity and His deity enter into the human creation are for you and I, sinners in need of being rescued. And there's an excerpt from the song, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. You're familiar with this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. Okay, we'll leave that to Walt and Jacqueline. But one of the, one of the lines uh, goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. In Christ, we find the expulsion of the darkness. We find expulsion of the darkness and fellowship in the light, with the light, as sons of light. And because this is true, there is hope. Right? There's, there's hope, true hope, authentic hope, genuine hope, tangible hope, temporal and eternal hope. Right? This isn't a hope that we um, are to one day take ultimate possession of. One day, ultimately, yes. But do we currently, as God's people, possess hope? Yes, absolutely we do. Right? And that's the, that's the message right? to, the, to the skeptic among us this morning and in our communities and in our homes is that hope is found, rescue is found, salvation is found, joy is found in the incarnate one, right? in Christ Jesus. R.C. Sproul said it like this, every human being longs for a savior of some type. In fact, we've kind of bridged the gap this morning, I think, between, between, between hope and salvation, right? We've almost made a connection between these two. In the same way that we long for hope, we, we long for a savior of some type. We look for someone or something that will solve our problems, ease our pain, or, or grant the most elusive goal of all happiness, from the pursuit of success in business on 
or friend, we make our search. The burst of light that flooded the fields of Bethlehem announced the advent of a Savior who is able to do that task. And so from John 1, the message is this, that we are desperately needy. We are incomprehensibly needy, reliant on the mercy and compassion of our Creator to rescue us through His condescension and His death in our place. An act that Christ lovingly embraces. An act that we are reminded of as we come to the table today. Thus, as we explore these Advent themes, light, (laughs) I hope, peace, joy, and love from John's Gospel, we take hold of the call of the psalmist in Psalm 105, verse 2. I want us to close our time by considering this. Psalm 105, verse 2. The appropriate response to the realization of our, of our hopelessness and the hope that is made available. The hope that we have been called into by God's great grace and compassion. The hope of the gospel. Let us consider this as we come to the table today. Psalm 105, verse 2. Sing to Him. This is the only appropriate response. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell about all His wonderful works. This is the appropriate response to the realizations that we have drawn out from John 1 this morning. And so, as we come to the table this morning, consider it of these things. As we um, take of the elements, remembering Christ's body broken for us. As we um, remember Christ's blood shed for us. As we remember the advent of our King. His death in our place, His ascension, and His promised return. The second advent. We remember the second advent every week. In what way? We come to the table and we remember both what has happened and we look forward with eager anticipation with what is to come. Jesus is coming back. Right? Our King is returning to judge evil right? and to, to rescue His church. We remember that as we come to the table today. And so let's let's pray. Let's take of and observe the Lord's Supper and then let us as God's people sing well. Amen. Father, thank you for your goodness.